We have four young men who will be speaking to us in just a few moments. What we'll do is have each one come forward, give us what the Lord has laid on his heart, what he's studied out in Scripture. Brother Daniel Crosby will be the first one we'll hear this afternoon, followed by Brother Matthew Eastland, then Nathan Crosby, and finally Jonathan Carnell will be speaking to us. Brother Daniel, please come forward. Please open your Bibles with me to Joshua chapter 4. I have a pretty simple point that I'd like to make today, but I hope it will stir up some conviction in your hearts that will result in actions on both my part and your part. Amen. For a quick context of Joshua chapter 4, the children of Israel have just passed over the Jordan River on their way from Egypt to Canaan. Please follow along with me as I start at verse 1. And it came to pass, when all the people were clean passed over Jordan, that the Lord spake unto Joshua, saying, Take you twelve men out of the people, out of every tribe a man, and command ye them, saying, Take you hence out of the midst of Jordan, out of the place where the priest's feet stood firm, twelve stones, and ye shall carry them over with you, and leave them in the lodging place where ye shall lodge this night." Then Joshua called the twelve men whom he had prepared of the children of Israel out of every tribe a man. And Joshua said unto them, Pass over before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of Jordan, and take you up every man of you a stone upon his shoulder, according unto the number of the tribes of the children of Israel. That this may be a sign among you, that when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, What mean ye by these stones? Then ye shall answer them, The waters of Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over Jordan, the waters of Jordan were cut off, and these stones shall be for a memorial unto the children of Israel forever. Amen. This story and lesson that is taught has been something I've been thinking about for a number of months, and it became even more real a few months ago when a situation with my son caused me to stop and consider... And I had a conversation with somebody in this church who had a similar situation in their life. And they recounted to me the fear that was in their hearts and the comfort the Lord gave them. And that comfort was comforting to me. And so what I want to just briefly touch on today is what memorials or what remembrances are you making in your own personal life of where the Lord has delivered you? The Lord has showered us with blessings that are beyond belief, but too often we forget. We're in need and we pray for them, but when they're done, we most times forget them and move on to something else. This this lesson in the Bible is not just here. There are other times when the Lord wanted the children of Israel to memorialize something in order to remember it. Right. If you think of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, in Exodus 13 it says, And thou shalt show thy son in that day, saying, This is done because of that which the Lord did unto me when I came forth out of Egypt. And it shall be for a sign unto thee upon thine hand and for a memorial between thine eyes that the Lord's law may be in thy mouth. For with a strong hand hath the Lord brought thee out of Egypt. How many times did Proverbs say, My son, attend unto my words. The things that have happened aforetime can and should be a source of hope and comfort for us. The Lord is teaching us life lessons. Are we teaching our children about those, or are we making them learn it themselves? The Lord is constantly showering us with things, but what are we doing with them? 
Are we setting up anything in our life, any kind of memorial to where our children are going to say, what meaneth this? And we can recount the goodness of the Lord to us. Joel 1, verses 2 and 3 says, Hear this, ye old men, and give ear, all ye inhabitants of the land. Hath this been in your days, or even in the days of your fathers? Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. Your children are not going to know what to tell their children unless you tell them something. I'm going to go as far as to say that you should write it down, and you should memorialize it to the Lord to show the details to your children of how good the Lord was in delivering you. For example, just some ideas that you could start with. Has the Lord given you an incredible birth story or child delivery? Has he answered your prayer above and better than you asked or thought he could? Has the Lord given or replaced a job with one better? Has he given you an unexpected raise or promotion? Have you sold a house before the for sale sign went into the yard? Has the Lord brought you a perfect spouse from out of nowhere? Has the Lord saved you from car accidents? Has the Lord healed your diseases? Has the Lord given you peace that passes understanding in time of trouble or trial? Has he given you a church family to replace family that you have lost because of the gospel's sake? We love to read the Psalms because we like to realize that David, the great David, even had times of trouble or trial in his life and how the Lord delivered him. But I ask you, could we write our own version of the Psalms? Could we write, I was here, I prayed to the Lord, and this is what he did for me. And could we memorialize that as a way of thanking our Lord? We expect, hope, and pray that our children practice 1 Chronicles 28, verse 9, of which the first part reads, And thou, Solomon my son, know that thou the God of thy father. But are we giving them the information and the things they need to know our God? So they can understand how personal our God is to us. This point is simple, but I hope it will give you something to think about in ways that we can memorialize and not forget all the Lord's benefits towards us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Daniel. Wonderful. Remembering the things of God in our lives. If you would, brethren, please turn to the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. I'll be starting off there in just a minute. First, I want to call some facts to your minds so that you will have a proper mindset for this. If we're the children of God, Satan can do nothing to us. Hell is no threat to us. We have nothing to fear beyond this life. However, he spends lots of time and lots of effort going after us, showing us our problems, showing us our weaknesses, showing us our sins, so that he can tear us down. Because he doesn't want us to have happy, joyful, profitable lives that serve God on this earth. He wants to make us weak. And to be honest, brethren, it's pretty easy. I want you to look at uh, verses 26 and following in this chapter. With me, um, last Sunday we dealt with the idea of God's impartiality. God is impartial. He is fair. He is just in who he chooses. And yet, I want to point out to you today that there is a way in which God is not partial. I want to review with you a sermon that was preached several years ago called Jesus Loves Losers. Amen. Brethren, I read to you this passage to remind you who and what we are. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, 
Not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. The base things of the world and the things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring the not the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. I can't speak for the rest of you, so I'll speak for myself. I'm a loser. I'm not pretty. I'm not wise. I'm not mighty. I'm not rich, and I'm not powerful. And let's be honest. None of us are. Amen. But God chose us. And I want you to think about that today, because I want to steal the devil's power over you. I want to take that away. I want to show you how God's love is directed towards you, no matter what you've done, no matter where you've come from, no matter how poor and base and weak you are. I don't want that to touch you any longer. As we see in this passage, brethren, God specifically picked those like us. He specifically picked the things with no value whatsoever. So, if you find in yourself no value whatsoever, be joyful. God picked you because it suited him to do so. I would have you turn with me to James chapter 2 real fast. We're going to go through a couple passages to begin with. And then when we finish reading some passages, just to show you the doctrine of it, I'm going to go through some biblical examples. James chapter 2. Looking again at uh, the way that God has chosen. Verse 1. My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect of persons. For if there come unto you unto your assembly a man with a gold ring and goodly apparel, and there come in also a poor man in vile raiment, and you have respect to him that weareth the gay clothing, and say unto him, Sit thou here in the good place, and say to the poor, Stand there there, thou there, or sit here under my footstool. Are ye not then partial in yourselves, and have become evil judges of evil thoughts? Hearken, my beloved brethren, hath not God chosen the poor of this world rich in faith, right. and heirs of the kingdom which he hath promised to them that love him? Are you poor? Are you hard-pressed because of the things of your life? Do you have difficulties and problems? Have you created them yourself with your living in the past? Have you made mistakes that have cost you? God has chosen you rich in faith. Now, it's not merely because you have those things. There is no virtue in being poor in and of itself. But there is virtue in the fact that God picked such people to be his own. Right. Brethren, Jesus, in his ministry on this earth, chose those people specifically to be with. He did so to the point where he was criticized by others. How many times do we see the Pharisees coming to Jesus and saying, why are you with these people? Why are you with the sinners? Why are you with the prostitutes? Why are you with the publicans? And Jesus, every single time, defended them. Are we any better in ourselves? No, we're not. Brethren, I counsel you to be careful not to have the mindset of the Pharisees yourselves, thinking yourselves to be righteous. None of us are any better. And that we should take joy in. We have joy in the fact that our sins mean nothing to the Lord. He is capable of looking over them completely. And uh, if you look in Luke chapter 15 with me, we have again the direct words of Jesus specifically relating to such people. Luke chapter 15, verse 7. 
I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner, sinner that repenteth more than over ninety and nine just persons which need no repentance. Verse 10. Likewise I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repenteth. Brethren, you look around and you think, well, that person's more righteous than me. That person's better than me. They haven't made these horrible mistakes that I have. They haven't done these wrongs. They, they don't have to deal with these issues. God cares more about you. God cares about you turning your back on your sin and coming to him more than 99 such people. Right. Did God send Jesus to seek and to save the perfect? How about the mighty? The beautiful? The righteous? He came to seek and to save that which was lost. Brethren, if you've been lost, take comfort. Let me give you a list of examples here. It's a, there's actually 21 listed in Brother Jonathan's outline. I grabbed just a couple of them, and I'm glad I picked the ones I did because a number of them were used this morning already. But I will remind you of one from the preparation last night and that was mentioned today. That woman with the issue of blood. Right. Who was she? She was poor. She had given everything she had. Nothing left. She had no standing whereof to go to the Lord. She was so afraid that she couldn't even face him herself. She just wanted to get a little blessing, but she didn't have the courage to face him. Think about the level of poorness to that woman, the level of fear. Yet he healed her, and then he singled her out to bless her. That's how much Jesus loves losers. Think about the man that sat outside the rich man's house, that poor man who had just to beg food from the rich man's table, and the, and the best medical attention he could get were the dogs licking his sores. He got personally carried to heaven by the angels. Think about that level of poverty, and God saw fit to save him. Right. Think about the Gadarene, a man filled with devils. Jesus crossed a sea for that one man to save him. How many other righteous men were around? How many other people could he have reached in that period of time? But what he cared about was one man who was wicked, who was filled with wickedness, and he saved him. Think about Zacchaeus, a little man who was a publican, so he's rejected by society. He had cheated people out of their money. He had embezzled for the sake of the government. And he was, well, physically little. And he was surrounded by a great group of people, powerful, popular people. And what does he do? He looks at Zacchaeus and says, I'm going to your house. I want to be with you. He picked a man like that out of that crowd. Think of the man born blind, which you've already mentioned today. Born from birth blind. And he had nothing. He was a beggar. Nothing whatsoever. Healed. Well, okay, so he's gained status. No, he's then thrown out of the church for being someone that they didn't want, for being a troublemaker, for trying to speak of the truth. And Jesus found him again to raise him up again. Think of that level of care. He didn't just come to him once and heal his problem and then let something else happen to him. He came back and aided him yet again. Right. Think of the Philippian jailer, suicidal pagan, 
who had just been instrumental in helping harm some of the followers of Christ. That's the man that they were sent there for, to save. Amen. Think about some of the women in the line of Jesus. Now, there are four women mentioned in the entire family of Jesus. Four. Every single one of them is somebody that should naturally be looked down on. Think about Tamar. She played the role of a prostitute to seduce her father-in-law, but she did it for a righteous cause. She was picked to be in the line of Jesus for her faith, for her service to God. Think about Rahab. Again, pagan, of a nation that Israel was forbidden to have anything to do with, of a city that was entirely destroyed, and a prostitute. In the line of, God, of Jesus. Right. For her faith in the Lord. Think about Ruth. Moabitess, again, enemy of Israel, who followed the Lord and again ended up in the line of Jesus. Think about Bathsheba, adulteress, reason for a murder. And again, these four women are singled out specifically to be shown for the descent of Jesus because of their faith and because of their service of God. Every single one of them, on natural reasons, we would want to say they don't belong there. So those are some of the examples in Scripture of how God loves people who naturally are losers. Right. So now that I come to the end, I ask, what should we do knowing this? First of all, don't waste your time looking around at what man cares about. Don't waste your time thinking about how I've accomplished nothing, I'm worth nothing. Why should God care about me? God cares about you. doesn't matter why. God cares about you. Stop measuring based on man's standards. Measure based on God's. He picked you for his honor and glory, no matter how ugly you, I, may be. If we were forgiven so greatly, how much should we forgive others? Amen. If we were forgiven so greatly, and if we have been selected to be children of God, the heirs of the universe, how on earth can we ever measure other people by those standards either? What right do we ever have to look down on others for their wrongdoings if they come to God? We have no place to judge persons, as we already read in the book of James. Zero. No reason at all. It doesn't matter if the wealthiest person in the world were to come in this room. He is no better than any of the rest of us or any other person that comes in here. Before the Lord, we are all equals, no matter what we have done or where we come from. We should reject our own self-righteousness in viewing ourselves as something that we are not. I'm sorry if somebody here believes that they are not poor, ugly, weak, base, foolish. If you think that about yourself, then you're the most base of all of us. Right. Reject that. Because realize there is nothing of value in any of us. We should put all that aside. But the true impact of this is that we should remember and believe that we have been given forgiveness. Never let the devil drag you down. Never think that your sins are so great that you are not deserving. Never think that I failed again. God doesn't love me. I can't be his child. You're thinking on man's level again. Push it aside. God cares for you. He cares for his losers. And if you're his loser, then he cares for you. Amen. Brethren, I'm, not, I'm going to give you a verse, and you should know it very well in the book of Revelation, that it's abused so often. But Jesus stands at the door and is ready to knock and to come in and to sup with us. Right. He doesn't care what you have on your table to feed him with. He doesn't care how pretty your house is. He cares that you are there. He cares that you are his child. 
and he wants to be with you. Forget about everything else. Believe and follow him. Brethren, we sang the song we just sang because I want you to think about it. If you tarry till you're better, if you tarry until you're presentable enough that God would love you, you will never come. You will never be ready for him. You will never put away what you are by nature. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care if you're weak and you are wounded. He doesn't care if you are bruised by that fall. He is ready to help you. He is ready to be with you. He's ready to love you. Embrace him. Go to him. Run to his arms where he is happy and waiting to accept you, brethren. Never let your faith be torn down. Never be discouraged. God loves you because God loves his losers. Amen. Thank you, Matthew. Brother Nathan. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians 5. A couple of months ago, our pastor gave us a series of Wednesday night studies on the seas of a Christian walk. I want to take a verse from that study and a couple of other verses and tie them together for our learning today. Ephesians 5, in the middle of Paul talking to the Ephesian church, is teaching them to walk in the light because they are children of the light. And the verse that I want us to focus on is Ephesians 5, verse 15. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. See then that ye walk circumspectly. Amen. Galatians 5, verses 22 and 23. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, the fruit of the Spirit. Hear these, this list from my mouth. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. I want to tie walking circumspectly in this life with walking circumspectly in grace and having a gracious way of doing it. We can get up here and wax eloquent about doctrine. We can go over the five phases of salvation, talk about the seven proofs of unconditional salvation. We can get into the incarnate sonship of Jesus Christ. We can do that, but it's vain if we aren't living lives that are showing forth the things that he's taught us in his word. When Paul writes to a church, he talks about those things. But then he spends a majority of his time, especially in his concluding practical aspects of his letter to them, admonishing them, encouraging them, and exhorting them to brotherly kindness and walking circumspectly in grace. It's easy to look about us and see the churches and the denominations out there that are preaching parts of doctrine and trying to crush those and trying to find verses to repute against those things. But it's important to us to walk the walk of Jesus Christ 
not talk about the doctrine. Our pastor, when he went over the study of the seas, used walking circumspectly from a category of our lives. That's something we should do on a categorical level. I want to break it down to a situational level. I want it to be something that we do with each and every decision we make in each and every circumstance we find ourselves in. One of the reasons I wanted to speak on this is in studying David's life, as my children and I and our family went through First and Second Samuel, I noticed on several occasions we see something omit from David that grabs you, and it's his graciousness. It's his ability in every situation to deal with things in a very peculiar way, much more peculiar than anybody else we may read about except for the Lord Jesus Christ. Here's a short definition for graciousness. Marked by kindness or courtesy, marked by tact or delicacy, kind, warm, tasteful, charming, pleasing, courteous, polite, condescending, compassionate. 1 Samuel 17, and talking about David, let me read this verse to you and see if this isn't the way that you want to do things. 1 Samuel 17, after David has killed Goliath, finds himself in front of Saul. And Saul asked him, Whose son art thou, thou young man? And here's an opportunity for him to boast a little bit. I mean, just taking care of Goliath, maybe get a little praise for himself. He just saved his nation from the Philistines. But no, here's what a gracious man says. And David answered, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. He really didn't even answer the question, because Saul asked who he was. But he was gracious enough to acknowledge that he was the son of his servant, his father, Jesse. Abigail shows us humility in 1 Samuel 25, 24, in the way she approached David after finding out that him and his men were coming to kill her husband. She has very similar language that's used there. 1 Samuel 25, 24 says, and this is Abigail, And fell at his feet and said, Upon me, my Lord, upon me let this iniquity be, and let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak in thine audience, and hear the words of thine handmaid. Handmaid twice, begging for an audience to this man that was coming to kill her husband. If you noticed in the definition, there was a word there that I want to focus on for just a moment, and it's tact. When we think about graciousness and how we use it in our day-to-day lives and in the situations we find ourselves in, I found it unique that tact was part of that definition. Are we tactful in the way we approach situations with graciousness? There's a gracious and an ungracious way to do everything. Everything. You can close a door graciously or ungraciously. You can talk, you can walk, you can smile, you can think. Everything we do can be done graciously or ungraciously. We all know it when we go over to somebody's house and it's warm and kind and inviting and a great evening. And sometimes you go to someone's house and it's cold and it's brutal and everyone's upset and we see it then. But do we break it down in our own lives 
into our situations. Another part of that definition was condescending. That's a biblical word, to be gracious, to find ourselves condescending to men of low estate. Part of that can be confused that we're not supposed to be condescending in the respect of not thinking that we're greater than other people, and therefore everyone's below us. But we are to condescend in how we act and treat them, finding ourselves on their level. And truth be told, much of the time, we're not condescending. We're actually having to look up to get to their level. Here's a very, very important point, and, and one of the main points I want you to leave with today, and it's 1 Corinthians 10.23. Turn with me. 1 Corinthians 10 and 23. This is what I would like you to think about when you find yourself in your situations where I pray from this quick reminder, as you're, as you're trying to think through, am I being gracious in this circumstance, or am I being gracious in this particular event that I'm finding myself, and this is what I want you to think. 1 Corinthians 10.23, and this is what the Apostle Paul would say. All things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. When you're finding yourself in those circumstances, are you pushing your Christian liberty on the circumstance, on the situation? Or are you looking at it knowing, okay, I might be allowed to do this, but is it expedient for this particular situation that I find myself in? If we look through every situation with the eyes of 1 Corinthians 10.23, we will find ourselves much of the time changing what we are initially going to do. Because by nature... We are selfish, we're hateful, and hating one another, and therefore we're always going after what we want. But if we'll do those things that are expedient for every situation, we will find ourselves condescending. We'll find ourselves being gracious. We live in an entitlement society today. Everybody thinks they're owed something. They're taught from their youth. They're taught in the schools. They're taught in churches. Every day is a Friday. If we'll have enough faith, you can have whatever you want. The 31 sayings of... I am, or whatever the last book was. We, we live in a generation where the prosperity gospel is preached to everybody, and truthfully, that prosperity gospel comes with you believing that you deserve everything. And if you just have enough faith, you can have it. Children should be brought up to know and to learn that graciousness is the most important part of how they treat other people. Right. From an early age, they should realize that everybody else's things are more important than their own. It's a commandment in God's word. It's a lost art. It used to be said that things were gracious, that it was a gracious host, that was a gracious thing that person did. The word gracious is rarely used anymore. And truthfully, I believe the definition has practically been kicked out of society. We need to bring it back. We need to omit it from our lives. We mentioned Philippians 2.3, esteeming others better than ourselves. Romans 12.16 mentions condescending. Hebrews 13.1 says, Let brotherly love continue. I'm going to finish that thought in Hebrews 12. It starts with let brotherly love continue, but listen to this, listen to this explanation. Hebrews 13.1, Let brotherly love continue, and moving on, Be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember them that are in bonds as bound with them, 
and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. A great explanation of how we're to look at other people. Through the eyes of graciousness, we find ourselves in the situation that they may be in and therefore being able to think through what they're going through. To be gracious means that you're constantly thinking about everything through somebody else's eyes. When you find yourself in a situation, what's everybody else thinking? What would hurt them? What would help them? What would build them up? What would edify them from earlier? There's a saying that children are taught when they're very young, treat others as you'd you'd like to be treated yourself. That's graciousness. Think through every situation and how you can treat somebody the way you would want to be. They say the golden rule, one of the golden rules is to treat others as you'd like to be treated. It's a great rule. It's a biblical rule. It's something we should think about. Right. It's getting outside your comfort zone to look for opportunities, which is another level of graciousness. I had difficulty breaking this point down, but it was very important to give this to you. We can be circumspect. That is part of our Christian walk. We're taught to be circumspect. But another level beyond that is to be gracious. It's not only looking around us to see what's going on around us, but it's doing it in a way that we're trying to help other people, edify them, and build them up. But then there's a third level, and it's a level that we ought to be striving for, and that's to look for opportunities to show graciousness to other people. It's beyond just being circumspect. It's beyond just being gracious. It's being proactive. It's looking around a church body like this and seeing who's in a situation that I can help with. Who needs encouragement? Who needs an uplifting word? Who needs admonishment? You can admonish people graciously and do it to help them. It's one thing to avoid trying to offend other people. It's an entirely different thing to see how you can help somebody. It's one thing to make sure you haven't broken somebody's spirit and broken them down. It's another thing to look how you can build them up. I challenge us to another level of Christianity, to another level of graciousness beyond just being circumspect and just being gracious, but let us be proactive in it. I'll leave you with three questions to know if you're gracious or not and how to put this into practice. Do other people seek your friendship? It's one of the easiest ways to tell if you're a gracious and kind person. There are some people in this congregation, there are some people in every congregation that automatically have people find themselves attracted to them. Their presence, their words, their smile, their kindness. And there's other people in every congregation that people are trying to stay away from, always keep an arm's length. Which group are you in? Where do you find yourself? Sadly, this came up because I was thinking about myself and what people think about me and whether they want to be around me and and have my friendship or whether they really avoid me and I have some things to change. Second question, what is your kingdom reputation? Do people see you as a gracious and kind person or do they see you as an overbearing, odious person that they want to stay away from? And a third question, especially as we come to the end of 2012, have you grown in grace in the last 12 months? Have you grown in the grace since the Lord bestowed his grace upon you and changed your heart to follow him? Do people want to be your friend? What's your reputation? And have you grown in grace? Lord, help us to continue to grow in grace and to find ourselves in a year from now, five years from now, 
for the rest of our lives increasing, we pray. Amen. Thank you, Nathan. Brother Jonathan. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 15. Proverbs chapter 15, and we'll look at verse 12. I'd like to speak to you about the value of counsel from brethren and from fathers and from men of God. I'd like to do it from this verse, Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 12. A scorner loveth not one that reproveth him, neither will he go unto the wise. Amen. This is a beautiful proverb. Yep. There's, I see three lessons taught here, and the beauty of the wording is just incredible. Think about this. All three lessons that I see here are all implicit. There's no explicit lesson here. It's an observation about a certain despicable category of men. Right. It doesn't say whether it's good or bad. It doesn't say what the right thing is. It just says this is a character trait or a characteristic of a horrible category of men. Mm-hmm. A scorner loveth not one that reproveth him. It doesn't say a scorner hates one that reproves him, although that's true. We know from other passages mm-hmm. and from experience. It says, a scorner loveth not one that reproveth him, and neither will he go unto the wise. Here's three little lessons that I see here taught in this verse. And here are the explicit lessons. One, godly men and women love wise reprovers. Secondly, godly men and women actively seek out counsel from the wise. So there's two halves to this verse. One is you accept it passively when others give it to you of their own volition. And two, you seek it out actively and and, uh, draw it out from others. We'll see those words draw out in another verse. And thirdly is even more indirect, but it's, it's also here. Counsel and wisdom comes from the wise. So... If you, if you want to seek out your reprovers or accept counsel, make sure it's from the wise and righteous. A scorner. What is a scorner? A fool is a person that's just devoid of wisdom and doesn't really have interest in learning wisdom. And they keep repeating the same mistakes over and over again. A scorner is a bit worse because they love those mistakes and the folly that is in their hearts and they hate wisdom and they hate those that possess wisdom and try to help them. A scorner is a vicious animal that attempts to destroy those who are wise and try to teach them wisdom. Right. As I mentioned earlier, this is one of the most despicable groups of men in our world. And a proverb says, the scorner is an abomination to men. So let's look at these three lessons. One, godly men and women love wise reprovers. I'm going to read a list of Proverbs here. You don't need to turn to all of them. Uh, But if if one sticks out to you, I want you to hear this. There's lots of Proverbs that address this subject. Proverbs 13.1. A wise son heareth his father's instruction, but a scorner heareth not rebuke. Does that mean he doesn't hear with his ears? No, he hears it with his ears, but it doesn't penetrate because he doesn't want it to penetrate. Right. 
Proverbs 15.10 Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way, and he that hateth reproof shall die. Mm -hmm. Do you love correction? Or is correction grievous to you? Do you really... Does it really bother you when somebody tells you you're wrong, especially if you know that they're right? Correction is grievous unto him that forsaketh the way. Proverbs twelve fifteen. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he that hearkeneth unto counsel is wise. Amen. Here's some more positive statements. A reproof entereth more into a wise man, than an hundred stripes into a fool. That's Proverbs 17.10. Do you need a beating? Or is a word to you sufficient? Proverbs 9, verses 7 through 9. This addresses both the, uh, the person needing counsel and the person trying to give counsel. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame. And he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself a blot. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. Give instruction to a wise man, and he will be yet wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. Proverbs 19.20. Here's a very interesting one. Do you remember a couple of men's meetings ago when our pastor taught us about this maturity curve? It's like an inverted parabola um, that's truncated at the end where you, you progress in maturity up to a certain point, and then as your strength and your energy fades later in life, it starts to wane somewhat. And if you're not careful, if you're not diligent, then you fall below that curve of growth that you should be on. Well, Proverbs 19.20 sort of addresses that and uh, suggests to us that one critical component to getting up onto that maturity curve or even surpassing it is in the contribution you receive from others via counsel. It's not that you generate knowledge or experience of your own self. The vast majority of what you learn comes from information of others. Proverbs 19.20, Hear counsel and receive instruction that thou mayest Be wise in thy latter end. And the converse is true by implication. If if you don't hear counsel and you don't receive instruction, you won't be wise in your latter end. You have to accumulate it over time, and it's coming from others. Proverbs 25, 12, As an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold, so is a wise reprover upon an obedient ear. David mentions this in Psalm 141.5, Let the righteous smite me. Now that would hurt. But let the righteous smite me, and it shall be, counted, it shall be a kindness. Right. And let him reprove me. It shall be an excellent oil which shall not break my head. Yes. For yet my prayer also shall be in their calamities. David was the king. There wasn't anybody... Um, and his sphere of influence that was above him hierarchically. And yet, he counted a kindness when a righteous person or a wise person, remember my third point, 
a righteous person or a wise person exhorted him or reproved him right. on some matter. He counted it a kindness, and he would pray, he would add you to his prayer list specifically if uh, you did that for him. In Proverbs chapter one, we have a lengthy uh, or the first introduction of Lady Wisdom as she addresses the sons of men. And here in verses 24 of chapter 1 through 33, I'll briefly read this passage. Because it's so particular to the judgment, there results in not heeding reproof and not heeding counsel. And as we read through this, I want you to think about the fact that there is no lady wisdom. This is a figure of speech. There is no lady that is speaking to you from the housetops or from the, uh, the high up parts of the gates. It's a figure of speech. How is Lady Wisdom calling to us? She is calling to us, but how? Right. It's not a lady. It is our pastor. It is the wise men that fill this room by the Lord's blessing. It's his word also, but especially it's these lieth people, these men of God and these um, older men in our midst that possess that wisdom through which Lady Wisdom calls to us. Let me read this passage in Proverbs chapter 1. Because I have called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. But ye have set at naught all my counsel and would none of my reproof. I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you. Then shall ye call upon, shall they call upon me. But I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Remember Wednesday night when our brother was teaching us about how some things in life are time sensitive? Right. And you don't always have the opportunity to take certain actions that you should take. Um, You need to do them soon, and then um, at some point, the window of of opportunity will be closed. Uh, Well, this is one of those. Lady Wisdom calls, but at some point... It may be too late when you finally realize that you should be listening to Lady Wisdom. It says here, they'll call and they'll seek me early, but they shall not find me. And why? For that they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore, therefore shall they eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them, and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely, and shall be quiet from fear of evil. So that's our first point. You take reproof willingly, and love the wise and righteous reprover. The second point, godly men and women seek out counsel from the wise, actively. Proverbs 27.9. Ointment, this is one of my favorites. I've quoted it to, to a few men recently when I have experienced this. Ointment and perfume rejoice the heart. So doth the sweetness of a man's friend by hearty counsel. Have you experienced that before? Do you know how you're in a dilemma or you're lost? You don't know what to do. You have some uh, definite lack of wisdom you've received in yourself and how to approach a situation that you're facing. And you go and ask a brother that has more wisdom, 
and he tells you exactly what you should do, and you realize that they're exactly right, and they gave you a piece of wisdom that you wouldn't have otherwise had. That's what this proverb is addressing, and we need to have that experience more often. There are several verses that mention a multitude of counselors. You should have more than one. Where there, where, uh, Proverbs eleven fourteen, where no counsel is, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. Fifteen twenty two, without counsel, purposes are disappointed. But in the multitude of counselors, they are established. Right. Proverbs twenty verse five. Remember how I mentioned a few minutes ago about drawing it out. This is the second half of the verse. The scorner will not go to the wise, and we need to go to the wise and draw out counsel. Have you ever noticed by your experience that some of the wisest men you know don't normally just come to you and confront you and tell you you're wrong and beat you over the head with something? I kind of wish they would more often, but they usually don't. That's kind of a characteristic of of older, wiser men. And the, the proverb recognizes that. It says, counsel in the heart of man is like deep water, meaning it's a well. You can't just dump out a well. You can't just come up and stick your head into it and drink it. It's a lot of work to get water out of a well. So you may have to approach a wise man and ask him a lot of questions and really push him and poke him until he'll open up and tell you what he thinks you should be doing differently. A man of understanding will draw it out. To the third point, briefly. Reproof and counsel should come from the wise and righteous. Several factors should be considered before issuing a reproof or offering counsel. If you remember Jesus' analogy of the moat and the beam, you may want to be sure that you have your sins confessed and that you've examined yourself. Uh, Some people, myself included, are find it very easy to offer criticism to others and not so easy to examine myself. So that's one thing to keep in mind. And several factors here that are taught in Scripture to consider. Is sin involved? If not, be careful of Christian liberty. Did they ask you? Is it incidental? If it's sin, is it, is it incidental? Or is it habitual? Or was it premeditated? Is it worthy of rebuke? Also, what is your position relative to the subject? Timothy, an ordained minister, was instructed on how to approach different categories of members in his congregation, even though he was in authority over them. 1 Timothy 5, 1 and 2, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father, and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. To entreat is to beg, implore, or beseech. Here's five short examples of people in Scripture that had experiences with counsel, whether good or bad. Here's a good one to start off with. Jethro to Moses. You can turn to this one, Exodus 18. This is is some ointment and perfume that we can be sure rejoiced Moses' heart. And as we read through this, just um, notice the kindness and compassion of Jethro and the helpfulness that he was affording. 
Right. So uh, he really, by the way he approached this, he ensured a good reception by Moses because he was, uh, he was really helping him. And he, he states that in his introduction. Exodus chapter 18, I'll start at verse 13. After Jethro arrives, and it came to pass on the morrow that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood by Moses from the morning unto the evening. And when Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did to the people, he said, What is this thing that thou doest to the people? Why sittest thou thyself alone? And all the people stand by thee from the morning unto even. And Moses said unto his father-in-law, Because the people come unto me to inquire of God. When they have a matter, they come unto me, and I judge between one and another, and I do make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Good thing, right? And Moses' father-in-law said unto him, The thing thou doest is not good. Thou wilt surely wear away, both thou and this people that is with thee. For this thing is too heavy for thee. Thou art not able to perform it thyself alone. Hearken now unto my voice. I will give thee counsel, and God shall be with thee. Be thou for the people to Godward, that thou mayest bring the causes unto God. And thou shalt teach them ordinances and laws, and shalt show them the way wherein they must walk, and the work that they must do. Moreover, thou shalt provide out of all the people able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands and rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all seasons, and it shall be that every great matter they shall bring unto thee, but every small matter they shall judge. So shall it be easier for thyself, and they shall bear the burden with thee. If thou shalt do this thing, and God commanded thee so, when thou shalt be able to endure, and all this people shall go to their place in peace. So Moses hearkened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. This is a good example of counsel. Jethro very easily recognizes that Moses is bearing too much of a burden, and so he gives him counsel. He explains it very well and uh, clearly shows the benefit that Moses will receive. And Moses takes it and does exactly what he said. Good example. Bad example, 1 Kings 12. This is Rehoboam, Solomon's son. As he uh, ascends to the throne upon his wise father's death, the children of Israel, uh, via Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, approach him and have just a little request. Solomon had a pretty hefty tax burden on people, and the people just wanted a little bit of relief. And they would be so thankful for that, they would serve him forever. So they just have a little question for him. And this is so that here's a matter of judgment that Rehoboam has before him. And he can either exert his... Are these people challenging his authority? That he needs to exert his authority on them and, and punish them for asking such a question? Or does he need to concede to their request? I mean, we all have this same position, don't we, as fathers and husbands, and maybe some of us are masters. I'll just read verse verse 4 here. Thy father made our yoke grievous. Now therefore make thou the grievous service of thy father and his yoke, heavy yoke which he put upon us, lighter, and we will serve thee. I won't read all of this account. So what he does is uh, he does something smart. He doesn't answer immediately. He sends them away for three days while he asks his advisors. 
Now, we may have some false idea due to our youth or our, uh, our society, our nationality, that asking for counsel is something that diminishes our stature, our reputation as a man. Well, that's not the case. Right. The higher in authority you go, the more counsel they ask of even their subordinates. That's an interesting point that I noticed while studying this. Even Rehoboam did it. Every king has advisors. Every president has a cabinet. So Rehoboam asks two different groups of men counsel, and he takes three days to do it. So the old men say, do it, and they'll serve you forever. And the young men say, they're challenging your authority. So he forsook the counsel of the old men, and this is what he says to the people when they come back on the third day. Verse 13. And the king answered the people roughly, that means rudely, and forsook the old men's counsel that they gave him and spake to them after the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, and I will add to your yoke. My father also chastised you with whips, but I will chastise you with scorpions. And the next verse explains that the cause was from the Lord. But the point is that there's a choice that should be made in choosing wise counselors and not foolish counselors. There's two other examples here of kings asking for counsel. Um, I'll just mention them briefly. You don't need to turn. Uh, One is Joseph to Pharaoh in Genesis 41. You might get the idea that when you're dealing with a person in authority, you're you're, uh, it's not a good idea to tell them what to do when you bring them a problem. But in fact, in, in certain cases, that's a good idea because they want the problem solved. So right. if you bring them a problem and propose a solution at the same time, then they probably actually appreciate that. And this is what Joseph and Daniel in these two examples did. So Daniel, here, I'm sorry, Joseph here in Genesis 41 is interpreting Pharaoh's dream about the seven fat kind and the seven lean kind, being uh, seven prosperous years and seven um, years of famine. And so Joseph gets to the end of his explanation of Pharaoh's dream, and he doesn't stop there. He gives a solution. So verse 33, Now therefore, let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh do this and let him appoint officers over the land, and take up the fifth part of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years, and let them gather all the food of those good years that come, and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh, and let them keep food in the cities. And that food shall be for its store to the land against the seven years of famine, which shall be in the land of Egypt, that the land perish not through the famine. And Pharaoh appreciated that advice. Daniel chapter 4. This is Nebuchadnezzar's account of Daniel interpreting the dream where Nebuchadnezzar was become, going to become a beast. Mm-hmm. So Daniel didn't want to answer quickly. Nebuchadnezzar said Daniel was astonished for one hour before he answered the king about this dream. He didn't want to rebuke the king openly. This was Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 27, though, Daniel has explained the dream, and so he offers a solution. Right. And it's great advice for all of us. You don't wean yourself off of sin. Wherefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable unto thee, and break off thy sins by righteousness, and thine iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, if it may be a lengthening of thy tranquility. And Nebuchadnezzar, that terrible king, 
actually heeded Daniel's advice for 12 months. I'll mention one final example here. In 1 Kings 22, the Lord asked counsel. This is the case where he wanted to get Ahab killed. And so he asked counsel in heaven of how, who had ideas on how to get that done. And there were several ideas. And an angel proposed an idea, which was to be a lying spirit in the mouth of his prophets. And the Lord loved that idea and told him to go and prosper. Even the Lord took counsel. Now, do you think the Lord didn't know what to do? Do you think he was not creative enough to think of a solution? But even the Lord asked counsel. He was lowering himself to the plane of men um, as an example. Or maybe this was actually a manifestation of his humor. So, to wrap this up, let me ask you a couple of questions. Have you ever been a scorner by not appreciating wise reprovers enough? As a child, a wife, employee, son-in-law, or a church member? Repent and tell a wise reprover how much you appreciate them for the love they've shown you. How often do you go to the wise for counsel? Try it. Review the major parts of your life with a wise man and ask him what he would do differently. It's a good exercise to obey the Lord's wisdom that he's given us in his word on the value of wise counsel that we have a lot of right here in our midst. Proverbs fifteen twelve, A scorner loveth not one that reproveth him, neither will he go unto the wise. Amen. Well, we've had a bountiful amount of instruction from the Lord this day. Just as a quick review, remembrances of God's deliverance, how we ought to be doing that. The fact that Jesus loves losers. The fact that we should focus on being gracious in our lives. And the importance of seeking out and heeding wise counsel. Amen. Amen.